go? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so this morning, my, my topic really, or my, my sermon, is that during spiritual decline and during a spiritual crisis nationally, and that's what was happening in Israel, that God calls for courageous people. And I really think that we're living in the days of Elijah. I don't know if you remember a popular worship song about 20 years ago. Tracy and I were in Ireland, and we kind of, we kind of checked out from the United States, which was a good thing. I no longer watch professional sports on television because I lost all interest in it when I was in Ireland. If a rugby match comes on, I might watch that. But if a hurling match comes on, boy, you know I'm going to be watching hurling. <laughs> but one of the things that I didn't keep track was is really the contemporary church movement in America. And I praised God because a lot of it was a lot of foolishness. And a lot of the songs that were written weren't very theologically sound. And I came back from Ireland to visit a church and the church was rocking. I mean, they had their rock band up there, and they had their lights and their strobe music, and the smoke was coming in. And, and you know, I'm not slamming all that stuff, but you know, it, we're not about the special effects here. Okay, um, <laughs> we have clean carpet. That's okay, but <laughs> the song that was being sung was the days of Elijah. We are living in the days of Elijah, and. I, it was a catchy tune, and I, I don't want to be so critical that I can't, you know, in, enjoy the meat and spit out a few bones, but I had some real issues with that song, to say the least, and the, the first lines were pretty good, and this is how it went. These are the days of Elijah, declaring the word of the Lord. Now, that sounds great. I, I'm, I'm, good, I'm good up to this point. These are the days of your servant Moses righteousness being restored. And though these are the days of great trial, famine and darkness and sword, still we are the voice in the desert, prepare you the way of the Lord. And that, that, that was, amen, I was singing the song. And then it got down to the next stanza, which talks about the days of Elijah that we're living in, that God is going to bring sweeping revival across the nations and that God was going to do like he did for Ezekiel, that he's going to raise up dry bones, and in the last days that we're going to see this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that there's going to be massive global revival everywhere. And I'm thinking, hmm, I wish that's what was predicted in the Bible, but it's not. The Bible tells us in the last days, perilous times are going to come, that unless there's a falling away, the end will not come. The man of sin is going to be revealed. Children are going to be disobedient to their parents. People are going to be unholy, without natural affections, truce breakers, and this is what we have to look forward to. That's the last days. Now, there is going to be an Elijah-like character coming that precedes Jesus' return, but that's during the time of the great tribulation. There's going to be an Elijah-like figure who's going to pray and stop the rain during the tribulation period. And we're not living 
in the tribulation. I mean, it, it, it seems like it, doesn't it, at times? And we're praying, even now, Lord, come quickly. But the days of Elijah, I think we are living in, in the sense that we've got a corrupt religious system that's imbibing in ecumenicism or eclecticism. And that's what was happening during the days of Elijah. What I mean by eclecticism is that Elijah was living in the days when Omri was the king, and Omri was in the Samaritan northern kingdom, and when Jeroboam went up there, he didn't try to introduce a new religion completely. He knew that that would not pan out very well. So he planned Jewish celebrations that would coincide with the Hebrew celebrations. He instituted a priesthood that would mimic the Levitical priesthood. He also established worship in Dan and Bethel to keep people from pilgrimaging down to Jerusalem, and so it incorporated a lot of religion that was in the land. And then Omri, the father of Ahab, he took it to a new level. It says that he followed in the sins, sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's found everywhere in the New Testament for every Israelite king. You read it. And he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel to fall. But Omri took it to a new level, and then he introduced Baal worship, the Canaanite god, the Canaanite fertility goddess, and the Ashtoreth. And they begin to build shrines everywhere, and they begin to incorporate a little bit more into this amalgamism of what is called Judaism. And this is what is happening in Christianity in America. It's being watered down, it's being infiltrated, and where terms no longer mean the biblical terms. He also lived in a time of political corruption. We're living in the days of political corruption. He was living under the tyrant of King Ahab, where his mandates went out, and his mandates were to worship the one pagan system. And this is what I see happening in our culture, in our society. So yes, we are living in the days of Elijah in that sense. Now, how do we interpret the Old Testament when we come to passages like this? When we look for the global, I mean the universal, timeless, biblical principle that is applicable to all of God's people throughout the history. Now, there are three covenants in the Old Testament that were unconditional that you and I are participating in to a limited extent, but not fully. And we have to be careful understanding these covenants because they were unconditional covenants given to the nation of Israel. They're not unconditional covenants given to the church. We cannot claim the land as Abraham claimed the land. We can't go to a a pagan campus and walk around that campus. <laughs> I was living in Rome, Georgia, and um, the head of the religion department there had us all, I didn't participate in it, but for seven days he had, had the student body circle the, the, the campus of Shorter College, and then on the seventh day they were all going to shout at the buildings. <laughs> And this is what he claimed. God had given him a word of knowledge that when they did that, they were going to 
cast down the walls of demons. And God was going to reclaim this campus for Jesus Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with being zealous. There's nothing wrong with being fanatical for your faith. But we cannot take promises given to an Old Testament individual because it was the nation of Israel and then apply them to us indiscriminately. There are application to that story of Joshua. There's application to it. Yes, we are walking around spiritual, physical buildings at times, and we can pray for God's blessing, but we don't have the authority that Joshua had that we can just all of a sudden bring down demonic spirits by, by shouting at something. That, that, that's a wrong application. Now, there's three unconditional covenants. One was the Abrahamic covenant. And God's covenant that you and I are participating in that covenant today is that God promised Abraham through his seed, singular, and Paul applies that to Jesus Christ in the book of Galatians. Not to seeds, plural, but to one seed, and that seed was Jesus Christ. You and I are participating in the Abrahamic covenant to that sense. But you and I are not a people that if people bless the church, they're going to get blessed. Or if people curse us, they're going to get cursed. It doesn't work that way. That is not for us. That was for Abraham. Now, I can trust my God. I can believe in my God that he will take care of me. And vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Now, that I can apply. But I can't expect any time that something bad is going to happen to me that God's going to somehow afflict them. Why did God do that for Israel? Because they were God's covenant people to point salvation to the one true God. And when you bless that one true nation, you then became in contact with the covenant relationship that would bring you salvation. That land was indeed to the Israelite people as a perpetual land. I can't say that God's going to perpetually give us this location right here. This is ours. God, I'm going to claim this building. I'm going to claim Dirk's plumbing, and we're going to, this is all ours. God's going to give it to us. I wish I could. But what I can believe is that God is always going to protect us. I can believe that God's church will be built, and the gates of hell will not triumph against it. I can believe that, and we can claim it, and we can do it, but it may mean that we're living somewhere else, or we're meeting somewhere else, or we're meeting in a backyard, or who knows what. The second unconditional covenant was with King David. And you and I are participating spiritually in that covenant today. Jesus Christ came of the seed of Abraham, a seed of David also. Matthew's gospel starts out, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. For unto us this day a child is born in the city of Bethlehem. For unto us is a Savior, which is Christos, Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So he is our risen king. But our risen king did not come to dethrone the White House. He didn't come to depose Caesar Augustus or Claudius Caesar. He came to depose the king of sin in our lives. And that's the application for you and I. There's one other unconditional covenant that God made with Israel, the nation of Israel, and it's the new covenant. And you and I are participating in the new covenant. God has written the law on our hearts. He has given us the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and of righteousness and to conform us into the image of Jesus. Now, all three of those covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, 
the Davidic covenant and the new covenant are all given to Israel as unconditional covenants. That's why at North Valley Bible Church, we are a literal Bible-believing church, and we believe that Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth, and He is going to fulfill every promise that He has made to His people in the Old Testament. The callings and the gifts of God, Romans 11, 25, I think it is, somewhere around that area. Don't check me out. I'll look afterwards. I'll go ahead. It's, it's, I don't, it's 11 something. Anyway, the callings and the gifts of God are irrevocable. When God makes a covenant with his people, he keeps his promises. They're yes and amen, and they're all fulfilled in Jesus. So one day, Israel's going to be back in their land. We saw the movement of that in 1948, didn't we? The massive movement of the nation of Israel back to their land. The King Jesus, the angels following the, the ascension, they looked at the disciples and said, why stand you looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, which was taken up from you, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Jesus is going to return. He promised he was coming back. That's the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, when Jesus Christ returns. During the Great Tribulation, 144,000 Jewish people are going to have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they are going to be heralding the kingdom that Christ is coming. And then all Israel, national cleansing, national repentance. And that's not going to happen. It never happened on His first coming. It's going to happen on His second coming. So why do we believe in a millennial kingdom for the Jewish people? Because God has made three covenants with His people in the Old Testament. So how do I come to this passage? I say all this so that we don't spiritualize this text, to make it say something other than what the original author intended. That doesn't mean that I can't make application to our current situation. Yes, I can, because we are living in similar days to Elijah. But the United States is not a theocracy. We are not a covenant-blessed people, nor do we have a specific message to call on God's judgment for unbelievers around us like Elijah did. In fact, we know this because Jesus himself rebuked James and John for wanting to do like Elijah did. He's on his way to the city of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, he's going to be crucified. The Samaritan village did not receive him. So you know what James says? They says, hey, there's a story in the Old Testament. Let's apply it right now. Shall we call down fire from heaven and consume these Samaritans just the way Elijah did? And Jesus turned around and he says, that's a different dispensation. The Son of Man has not come to do that. He has come to save the world. Guys, you made a bad application because you got the wrong theology. That's not what the Messiah is about. And so, yes, we have Jesus even making a precedent that we need to be careful when we take Old Testament passages and apply them the correct way. The days of Elijah were a day of national spiritual crisis. The days of Elijah, Baal worship had been taken to a level like never before. An apostate religion of syncretism had been established firmly in the land. Omri was a very, very wily character. He was a shrewd politician, and he was a powerful military leader. The Assyrian Empire uh, documents all of it. In fact, they talk about the house of Omri 
in the same manner that they talked about the house of David. The house of Omri paralleled the house of David in several ways. One, it was a dynasty where he passed the kingdom on to his son, his grandson, and his great-grandson. It was similar to David's dynasty in the fact that David purchased the city of Jerusalem to make it his citadel, to make it a fordable uh, tower, an uplifted city to defend against all enemies. Omri purchased the city of Samaria for that very purpose, and he named it Samaria. Omri prepared materials for his son Ahab the same way King David prepared materials for his son Solomon to build a lavish temple. Solomon was to build a temple to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, whereas Omri was preparing all these materials for his son Ahab to build an edifice for Baal, or Baal, the worship of the Phoenician Canaanite god. David had taken his power and his kingdom to a zenith like never before. Omri had done the same thing, only Omri did it through political alliances. He married into the families of the Tyre and Sidons who were the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were a powerful seafaring empire that traded all the way from North Africa as far as to Spain. And Omri was wise enough to say, you know, if I enter into the marriages and agreements with this family and I take on their religious practices, I can, I can embolden my strength and expand my empire. And Ahab took it even to another degree. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 23, that no other king did as wicked as Omri did until his son comes along. And we all know who Ahab's wife was, pretty old Jezebel. And it says that he married into Jezebel, who was the queen of the empire of Tyre, and her daddy's name was Eth. Baal. That is Baal lives and reigns. So man, he just embraced this whole hog. Not only did he embrace it, his wife took it to another extent where she persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. She persecuted God's people. She went out on a campaign to get rid of every Bible teaching preacher during the days of Elijah. Tried to silence God's church in the Old Testament. That's what Jezebel was doing. And she raised up 850 of her own prophets who sat around her table and did her bidding and did Ahab's bidding. And this is what we're seeing in America. The silencing of godly pastors who will preach the Bible and, and those who will compromise, they're, 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 there's no, no recourse for them. So we are, in a sense, living in these times. Things went from bad to worse during Ahab's reign. God has raised up Elijah in this time of spiritual crisis. There's no reference to Elijah until we get to 17.1. He just sort of jumps out at us. Here he is the first time, and Elijah the Tishbite. If we just stopped and we pondered what Elijah's name meant, El is the Hebrew word for Elohim. It means the all-powerful one. The little I is a little dot in Hebrew. It's the Yod, and it means my. Yah is short for Jehovah or Yahweh. And so his parents named this young man God. My God, my God is Yahweh. 
if we would be a people that boldly claimed that Jesus, Jesus Christ is my God. That's the kind of people that God is calling for during these times of spiritual crisis, during these times of apostasy, during these times of weak churches and weak preaching, weak, weak teaching, and Christians who don't know what they believe and don't know why they believe it and, are, and don't want to share with their friends, God needs to give us people who say, Jesus, Jesus is my God. He's my God. He's my Savior. He is my King. And so Elijah, his name, his name, Elijah the Tishbite, the inhabitants of Gilead, he said to Ahab, he wasn't afraid. He confronted the most powerful man probably in the Middle East at this time, other than the Assyrian Empire, which wasn't that strong at this point. The Egyptian power was waning, and he had married into the Phoenician, and so probably one of the most powerful men in the, in the Middle East. And he comes right to him face to face, and this is what we need. We need people who are confident, and they will stand on the authority of the Word of God. In this passage that we read this morning, everything that Elijah did was based on the Word of God. You go confront the king and you say, as the Lord lives. You go live by the brook of Cherith because this is what God has said. I'm going to send birds and they're going to feed you because God said it. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, and the brook dried up. And the very next verse is, and the Lord said. Everything that Elijah did, every decision he made, every message he preached, it was based on the authority of God's word. And that's the kind of people God needs to raise up at North Valley Bible Church. If we're going to impact a nation like Ahab's nation, we need people who will speak confidently the word of God. As the Lord lives, the authority of God, this is a solemn oath that Elijah is giving. Let Ahab know that this message carries the full weight and authority of God. Jesus said this, and this is where we can apply it. Jesus said before he ascended to heaven, all dunamin, power, might, and authority has been given to me. Go ye therefore and make disciples of every nation. We can do that based on the authority of our Lord and Savior, based on the authority of God's word. So he says there's a solemn oath here, as God lives. The gospel carries the only message that has the power to transform lives. Nothing else does. We carry this bold message. When Paul wrote the Thessalonians, he says, We are bold in our God to speak to you the gospel with much contention. Agonizomai is the word there that he used for contention. I'm agonizing, I'm struggling, I'm wrestling. I brought the gospel. You know what happened to me at Philippi. You know that I was beaten there. You know that I was thrown into prison. You know that I was put in stocks. He says, but I'm coming here anyway. And you know that I preached the gospel boldly in much contention. And this is why he said it. For our exhortation is not from deceit. Our exhortation is not from uncleanliness, got the right motives. And our exhortation is not in guile. And you and I can stand on the word of God, can't we, this morning? The next phrase that he uses in this first verse, he says, before whom I stand. He had a personal relationship with this God. This is the God before whom I stand. This is a phrase for a servant who stood before an authority figure 
and did all of their bidding, and he knew exactly what he was supposed to do. As the Lord lives, it's God's word. It's a God before whom I stand, who I have a close relationship, and I'm in intimate fellowship with him. And this is what we need to be confident. We need to know God's word, and I need to be in communion with our God. Paul quoted this from the Psalms, 2 Corinthians 4.13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according as it has been written, I believe and so I speak. We believe and so we speak. It's the God before whom we stand. The next phrase, let's look at it. The God before whom I stand. He says, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, comma. So let's look at that phrase. What is he claiming here? What is he prophesying? He's prophesying that there's not going to be any rain, but where is he getting that idea? Where is it coming from? It's coming from a long, protracted time in prayer with God. We're not told that he prays here, but James, a Holy Spirit commentary, tells us this in James chapter 5 and verse 16, that Elijah was a man subject to like passions just as we are. He wasn't any different from you and I. He put on his boots the same way we do. He combed his hair the same way. He brushed his teeth. He had the same problems with sin. He had the same temptation. He was a man of same nature as you and I, and yet he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain for three years and six months. So he's going, he says, it is not going to rain these years because he was a man of prayer. And this is what God wants to do. If we're going to be confident people, we need to stand on God's word. We need to have a relationship with God that's intimate. And we need to be people of prayer. And he's not just praying his emotions. He is praying the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 28. You go through that chapter and it's all these blessings and cursings. And cursings, if you walk away from God, cursed will be the heaven above you. It will be like bronze. Cursed will the earth below you. It'll be like iron. And God says, I'm going to rain dust on the earth. Elijah is standing and preaching Deuteronomy to King Ahab. And then the last phrase, except at my word. What is Elijah doing here? I think he's contrasting his word with four 150 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Ashtara, and he says they can prophesy all they want to. They can predict whatever they want to say because they don't have God backing them up. It's going to come except at my word because I stand before Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God before whom I stand and have a relationship, the God who I got on my knees and I prayed, and I believe that God is not going to send rain except at my word because I represent God. The confidence that you and I can have when we stand on the authority of God's word. We have this sense of authority. Because we can have a personal intimacy with Jesus. We can have a deep conviction and we can contrast our message with the message that everyone else is speaking. Jeremiah 23, 28 says, The prophet that dreams a dream, let him tell the dream. He that has my words, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff compared to the wheat? 
You know when you got into this book, don't you? And you know when you've read something else. This is the wheat. Everything else. You know, I read good books. And I read commentaries. But when I pick up this book, this is the wheat. The rest of it's chaff. Jeremiah goes on to say, what is the wheat compared to the chaff? My word is like a hammer that breaks in pieces. Therefore, behold, I am against you, prophet, says the Lord, that steal my words, every one from his neighbor. They were borrowing messages and just reheating them. You know, I heard old prophets say this. You want a message? You get into this word and you let God speak to your heart, and God will give you a message to tell somebody else. You don't have to get it secondhand. You don't have to warm up somebody else's sermon and, and regurgitate it. And that's what these prophets were doing. He says, my word is like a hammer. So we need to be prepared to speak God's word. Next, we need to be pre- prepared to listen to God's word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, so he's listening. That's verse 2. Verse 3, it says, Get away from here and turn east and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. It shall be that you shall drink from the brook. I have not I commanded the ravens to feed you there. That must have sounded like the weirdest thing ever. What? First thing, I think a little bit of isolation is good for us. We have our senses so overloaded that we can't even hear from God. I was watching my grandkids over the last couple days, and quite frankly, I'm kind of glad they had all their little iPods with them because I didn't have to entertain them. But Tracy had them get off of them, and there was like a meltdown. (laughs) But then... After a while, they, you know, they, they got one of them got a toy gun and got a pistol, and yeah, we got a violent house. <laughs> They're toys. <laughs> they were playing shoot 'em up, and you know, and they started using their imaginations. Uh, Rob, we're going to have quite a time when we take these kids backpacking, and they don't have a phone with them. What am I going to listen to? Listen to the birds. Listen to the breeze. Listen to the brook running underneath the stream. It's beautiful music. I remember the first time I went back, back, backpacking by myself. The first day, I thought I was going to lose it. The next day, it got better. By the seventh day, I didn't want to go home. I got on the highway, and I thought, what am I going back to? I'm going back to a rat race. And God tells Elijah, I want you just to go hide yourself. One, God was protecting him. Jezebel is going to be after you. And God has a way of protecting us, doesn't he? Sometimes he just wants to isolate us and get us out of harm's way. And we think, God, what are you doing? And God may be providing just the isolation that we need just to get alone and to be unhindered and distracted from everything that the world wants. And so, so God sends Elijah up in the brook. Next thing he tells him, he says, I'm going to send birds to feed you. Now, that wouldn't have been bad if it would have been a bird that was clean that he could have eaten. But this is a carrion. This is an unclean animal. He's not even supposed to touch it. God is telling him, you trust in me because I'm going to do it my way. 
You're going to try to figure it out, Ahab or Elijah, but it's not going to come the way you think it's going to come. And you know what else? I'm not going to send those birds to give you a month's supply of food so you can just sit, and sit back and say, you know, I don't have to worry about tomorrow. This is the way God wants you and I to live. Whereas you know not what is on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a short time and then vanisheth away. For you and I ought to say, I'm going to go to this city, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to invest my money, and I'm going to try to get this job if the Lord wills. Because I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And Elijah was to live by faith day by day, even though it didn't make sense, and he was to be alone and get alone with God. We need to be prepared to listen to the Word of God. Next, we need to be prepared to obey. Let's look at our text again. Verse 5. So he went. I love little phrases like that. They're so simple, but they're so profound. He went. I was talking to a brother this week, and... I had written this down. I'd, I, I have Mitch come in, and, and we kind of bounce the passages off together with each other. And, and Mitch said something. I said, ooh, ooh, that's good, Mitch. Let me write that down. And this is what I wrote down. And it was God just telling me that, that if I'm going to experience God's provisions in my life, and I, that's what we want to do as God's people. We want to experience his provisions in our life. We have got to be willing to step out on his promises. Elijah never would have experienced that if he hadn't have stepped out in faith. You think of how many biblical stories. Jesus tells his disciples, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. Another guy says, Lord, let me get in the boat with you. Jesus says, you want to get in the boat? He says, yeah. He says, okay. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air, they have nests. I've got no place to lay my head. You still want to get in the boat? He says, nah, you, you go ahead. You know what happened that night? They get in a horrific storm. They had stepped out in faith on God's promise. We're going to the other side. And because they did that, they experienced the provision of Almighty God in the boat with them. Jesus got up. He spoke to the wind, and he calmed the storm. Sometimes we don't experience God because we're not stepping out in faith with God. So many stories like that in the Old Testament. We don't need to be presumptuous, though, do we? We don't make foolish decisions. We don't make bad choices just to experience God. When, how did Elijah do this? Next phrase is very important. Verse 5, according to the word of the Lord. That's where you and I can step out in faith, according to the word of the Lord. When the brook dries up, then what do we do? Some of you may feel like that this morning. God, you've been providing. You've been providing. I've been experiencing your provisions. I believe in your word. But God, the brook is just about to go dry. What do we do then? We wait on the Lord 
The very next verse says, And then the word of the Lord came to him. God's timing. He wasn't too late, was he? But he didn't come too early. And he does the same thing in our lives because he is stretching our faith. Elijah was going to be a man that was going to confront the Baal worship face to face. God is more concerned about developing you and I's faith and our character than He is our comforts. Oh, so many times I wish it was the other way around. But you know what? I know how weak a Christian I would be if God put my comforts first. And God does spoil me. He really does. God has done so much exceedingly. And I've just got to stay humble before Him. And I can't get to the point where I'm trusting in my resources. And that's what God was showing Elijah. Elijah, you're not trusting in the brook. Elijah, you're not trusting in the ravens. You are trusting in me. And when the brook dries up, I've got the next step already planned for you. Just walk in faith. Confidence grows when we walk in faith. Elijah's dependence wasn't on the brook, it wasn't on the raven, it was on Almighty God. As we, as we face unique, unique sets of circumstances, God will perfect us through our faith. Uncertainty about our future keeps us humble. Then the word of the Lord came to him. God is always on time, never early, never late. He has a perfect timing for our lives if we will allow Him. We're living in days of Elijah, and we need men and women of Elijah. We need men and women who will say, Jesus is my God. We need the people who will say, as the Lord lives, this is His Word. This is the God before whom I stand. I have a personal, intimate relationship with Him. I spend time praying to Him, and I hear His voice and proclaim His voice. We need the people who will obey God's Word and not question it. And we need people who will be men and women of faith. When you get in those hard times, you wait on God. You let that faith perfect it, let it perfect in you that trial, let it keep, perfect your faith and make you mature, and you trust in the one who's provided for you, not the provisions that he's given you. Let's pray together to our Lord. Father God, we thank you for these Old Testament stories. We thank you, God, that it's real history. People who faced real challenges and who faced real, real opponents. Ahab was, was nobody to be trifled with. He had all the authority of a despot, of a, of a tyrant king. But yet, God, Elijah's life was scatheless because he was in your hand. God, I pray today that you will raise up in this time, in our culture, people like Elijah who say, I will fear God rather than men. 
and will speak your word faithfully because your word is wheat, it's not chaff. Your word is like a hammer that breaks in pieces. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture that we can study it. Help us today to live it and apply it, we pray in Jesus' name.